Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast brought to you by CJP Economics, a collaboration between Jim Power and Chris Johns, where we discuss the intersection between politics, finance, and economics. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found at our Substack website, and that Substack site also contains our extensive body of written work. Thanks for listening and reading. If you like our work, please share with your friends and sign up to our newsletter. Hey Jim, morning everyone. Morning Chris, um, I'm fine. Good, good to see you and hear you. Uh, we have had a, a whole rake of data and other economic news out from Ireland. We've had some quarterly GDP numbers. You've written a piece for our Substack site on that overnight. That's attracted a lot of attention and a lot of feedback, which is great. So I think maybe you could talk a little bit about that today as well as the Exchequer Returns, which came out after you wrote that piece. And as always, they contain some interesting elements, not least, I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, a surprising number for corporation tax, amongst other surprises in the numbers, which, as it seems to do these days, even in months where the numbers are expected to be quiet for things like corporation tax, we had, we had quite a big number. And of course, we've also had the housing plan. We've talked about housing and house prices and demand supply for housing a lot on this podcast in recent weeks. We don't want to overdo it, but it is clearly very topical and even more so now that we've had the plan. So I certainly um, would appreciate your thoughts on what you think of this plan to build a gazillion houses by the end of the decade. So maybe start with your written piece and the economic data flow before we come back to housing. Over to you, sir. Yeah, thanks, Chris. Uh, yesterday, as you say, we got the second quarter growth data for Ireland. And as always, um, one has to be careful in the interpretation of the gross domestic product, the GDP number, particularly given what happens with profit repatriations from the multinational sector, given what happens with aircraft leasing transactions and also the intellectual property assets but that the numbers were unambiguously positive. No surprises there because 
there's, there's a couple of points to make about it. Number one is that if you look at the quarter and quarter numbers, in other words, activity in the second quarter compared to the first quarter, uh, there was bound to be a strong rebound because during the first quarter, everything was locked down effectively. In the second quarter, we were starting to see some opening up. So that's been reflected. And the second point is that on a year-on-year basis, which is my favourite form of comparison, this is the first time we've seen a COVID quarter compared to a COVID quarter in the previous year. But the caveat here is that in the COVID quarter, the second quarter of 2020, that arguably was the low point of economic activity as a result of, or it was the high point of COVID lockdown. Okay, so as things opened up in the second quarter, the year-on-year comparison is certainly exaggerated. So, you know, bearing all that in mind, it is very clear that during the second quarter, economic activity on all fronts rebounded very, very strongly. And um, I'll say just a couple of things about that. One is that the multinational sector contribution continues to be incredibly strong. And during the release yesterday, the CSO um, spoke about what has been happening on the multinational sector over the last five years or so. You know, it's been growing really, really strongly. Um, Nothing really to do with COVID. It's just to do with the sectors we have here on the multinational front, pharma particularly, but also on the whole IT services area and so on. And really, really strong stuff coming through there. So that's good news. And the second piece was, and this, I I guess, is an even more important piece, is that the domestic contribution during the second quarter was very, very strong. So if you look at this measure called modified domestic demand, which strips out the distortions created by the multinational sector, very strong rebound in activity there. No surprises, consumer spending rebounding very strongly, construction activity rebounding very, very strongly. All in all, I'm not going to go in and you know bore the listeners with the uh, statistical breakdown. If people are interested in that, the piece I put up on the Substack account yesterday gives quite a bit of statistical detail. But it is a good news story. It does suggest that in the coming into the second half of the year, well, we're, we're well into the second half at this stage, but the momentum in the economy remains very, very strong. Ireland is going to deliver a very strong growth performance overall this year. And as I say, the encouraging piece is that while the multinational sector continues to perform very, very strongly, the domestic component of the economy is kicking in. I am not downplaying for one moment the challenges facing sectors that have been and continue to be subject to significant restrictions. You know, it's going to take some time for the the health to return there. And it is interesting, yesterday, the CSO compared activity in the second quarter of this year to the second quarter of 2019, uh, which is a pre-pandemic year. And the multinational sector output is up by over 20%. No surprises there. But the bit, I guess, the note of caution is that domestic indigenous activity is still about 3.5% lower than pre-COVID. So there is catching up to happen there. But it is happening. On the fiscal policy front, we got the latest exchequer returns yesterday evening from the Department of Finance for the 
first eight months of the year to the end of August. Incredibly strong numbers on the taxation side. Tax receipts in August, the month of August, were 37.2% ahead of August last year. But if you look at the first eight months of the year, just over $39 billion in taxation collected, 15.2% or $5.2 billion higher than the first eight months of uh, 2020. And if you look at the key components of that, the three key tax headings on the income tax side, 16.5 billion collected, up 18.9% or 2.6 billion on last year. So that just shows us that, and it's a point I've spoken about certainly on this podcast a lot since February, that the COVID impact on the labour market really did hit lower paid workers who make a very small contribution to the overall tax take. Those workers in sectors that were not affected by COVID lockdown to any great extent, you know, continue to earn. They pay the bulk of income tax anyway, given the progressive nature of our income tax system. So, you know, that that is definitely a good news story. There was a really strong rebound in corporation tax Seven billion collected in the first eight months, five hundred and twenty-four million ahead of last year, eight point one percent growth rate. So that's really strong. But I think that reflects something that you have been speaking about for a number of months, which is you you look you look very closely at what's happening tech earnings in the United States, for example, and you have predicted for some time that the surge in tech earnings in the United States, you know, would resonate in the Irish corporation tax side and that's exactly what's happening and and, and I guess the final important category of taxation is what's happening on the VAT side that's value-added tax 9.8 billion collected up 25 percent or 2 billion on the same period last year what that's telling us is that consumer spending is rebounding very strongly Uh, car sales coming from a very low base we have to admit, but car sales, you know, growing pretty strongly this year, overall consumer spending. And, and, and I guess a point I made in the written piece yesterday that I think is really important, and that is people are absolutely dying to get back to normality. You know, as the economy has reopened, we've seen people out shopping, spending money again. Uh, we see, unfortunately, in my view, but we see traffic on the roads here in Dublin, particularly, you know, congestion is back in vogue. Pollution is back in vogue. So, but 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 it does show that all this palaver about things will never be the same. People will utterly change their behaviour. You know, it's not happening. People want to get back and do what they were doing as quickly as possible. Hopefully, we will all make some positive modifications to our life post-COVID. Uh, but in, in overall terms, Chris, if you combine the growth numbers with the tax revenue numbers, a really, really strong story for the Irish economy. Jim, what sense do we have about how actual government borrowing this this year, this fiscal calendar year, will go relative to plans? I know that there's huge uncertainties and you can see in the exchequer returns themselves that they're already different to the forecasts that were made not least by the department of finance itself but other agencies at the beginning of the year but and with the runoff of um, employment assistance now 
probable for the next few months. It's going to be very difficult to gauge the outturn for public expenditure. But in very rough terms, or, or, or you know, just throwing um, a, a dart at a board, what will be your guess for the likely trajectory of borrowing this year and next? First point to make, Chris, is that the deterioration in the Irish public finances, you know, the, the massive deficit over the last 18 months has been due to expenditure on social welfare and health. It has not been due to tax revenues falling off a cliff, as was the case back in 2007, 2008. And as I've just explained, you know, tax revenues have been performing amazingly strongly. So it's an expenditure issue. And one would suspect, and I think one would hope that, you know, over the next couple of months, uh, there will be a dramatic fall off in, well, it's already happening, but it's going to happen more that the PUP payments will be gradually eradicated and they have to be because I I mentioned a couple of podcasts ago about what was happening in the restaurant sector, for example, restaurant owners telling me they're finding it difficult to get people to come back to work because of the PUP. So you will see the social welfare spend falling off significantly. Uh, The health spend is the other area that that is going to be more problematical because within the health service, um, there is a tendency for spending to become embedded in the system. I'd say forecasting Irish health expenditure is actually very easy. Is that you just you just look well, at the you look at the budget and and add an extra billion, don't you? Well, well, that 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 is the case, absolutely. And um, every year, every year, and there, there was every year, and there was an interesting CSO release earlier this week on population, showing that Ireland's population has topped five million. Million, I was going to say billion. Five, yes, five million for the first time um, since the 1830s. So a growing population, but the other component of the population is the aging of that population. And if you extrapolate the age profile of the Irish population out to 2050, there's going to be a dramatic aging of the population that will have significant consequences for expenditure on health. So that that is really an area that will require a lot of focus. And it, it is not a correct policy to just throw money at the health service. Um, and indeed, I think this applies to all areas of public expenditure. It's getting value for money. It's using the resources in the best possible manner. That's going to be the massive challenge. But you're correct. You know, there, there is this just ec- ongoing exponential growth in health spending. In answer to your question about the deficit, in the first eight months, we recorded a deficit of 6.7 billion. That compares to a deficit of nine and a half billion in the same period last year. So the deficit is falling. But the CSO, or sorry, the Department of Finance is now focusing in on what it calls a 12-month rolling basis. So it looks at the deficit in the last 12 months rather than in the year to date. And that's running at about nine and a half billion. The Department of Finance was talking about a deficit in excess of 20 billion for this year as a whole. I think it is likely to come in significantly lower than that. Obviously contingent on the planned ongoing opening up of the economy post-COVID actually materialising. So I think the public finances at the end of the year will be in a better place than was anticipated. Well, not if you're the central bank governor. He seems very worried at the moment about the trajectory of the deficit, which is really the reason why I was asking ask you about 
where you see the deficit going over the next few years. Because according to the newish boss of the Irish Central Bank, he's very worried about the likely outturn for borrowing over the next few years. Do you share those worries or do you think he's just being a classic central banker who always says this sort of thing? Well, well, I I think with Gabriel McClough, we've definitely seen him sort of exerting the independence of the central bank type line. Okay, so you would expect him to say that, wouldn't you? Well, I mean, and, and anybody who thinks otherwise is naive. You know, there has been a significant deterioration in the public finances over the last 18 months. We did have an excessive level of government debt coming into the COVID crisis. It is obviously being exacerbated. So I think it is totally sensible to come out and the Irish Fiscal Advisory Council does the same and will, I suspect, do the same ahead of the budget on October 12th to preach caution. You know, we need to be careful about how we manage the public finances. Uh, But preaching caution is different from advocating a return to austerity policies. And I, I think it's essential in bringing this debt situation and bringing the deficit under control that growth in the economy is maximized. And that's why austerity is not a policy option. But caution is a policy option. And I suspect in the budget on October 12th, Pascal Donoghue will take a pretty conservative approach you know, you are going to see attempts being made to roll back expenditure. You are not going to see a tax giveaway. So I think it will be a cautious budget. And the central bank governor, you know, coming out with the comments he came out with is is just pr- providing the background for that narrative. So uh, I'm concerned, but I, I'm not terribly concerned about the fiscal situation. And the good thing about Ireland today compared to 2007, 2008 is we are not alone. The debate we're having is a debate that's been had in virtually every country across the world at the moment. You know, COVID was a massive shock to the fiscal system everywhere. We just have to live with it and get on with it, get out of it. Absolutely. And one of the things that you said when you were talking about the exchequer returns, which caught my attention, was you mentioned the phrase value for money. Now, I'm not quite so sure whether this is true in Ireland, but in the UK, when you start mentioning public expenditure and value for money in the same sentence, um, it becomes very political. And the the left will often rise up against that and accuse you of being a Thatcherite for even mentioning value for money. And you'd have thought it was a very politically neutral point. But in the UK, it's not. Right wingers, Tories, if you say value for money and public expenditure, that's those are the labels that are thrown at you. And I think it's similar in Ireland, isn't it, Jim? It's exactly the same here. Yes. Value for money is equated with pro-austerity views. Okay. And, uh, you know, one of the principles of economics is how you allocate scarce resources in the best possible way. There are incessant demands on public expenditure and they will get worse um, as our demographics develop over the coming years. So anybody who believes that value for money should not be a guiding principle in our public finances is away with the fairies, in my view. You you mentioned, Chris, um, in your introduction as well, the, the housing plan, housing for all that was launched by the government yesterday. I could speak for another hour on this. I'm not going to, but the headline numbers, government is going to spend 20 billion on housing over the next five years. Um, they hope to deliver 300,000 houses before the end of the decade. That's to 2030. 90,000 sociable 
36,000 affordable, 18,000 cost rental and 156,000 private and rental housing. Okay, so 300,000 by the end of the decade. And is that, Jim, is that a lot? Is, I mean, these are these are numbers which, of course, sound like big numbers, but okay, you know, it, it would necessitate an annual average house build between twenty two and twenty thirty of around thirty three thousand. So that sounds to me like we're going up from the current levels of about fifty percent. Would that be right? Yeah, we we will deliver this year around. Last year we delivered just over twenty thousand. One would hope this year we'll deliver around twenty three. The expectation is next year, based on planning permissions, around twenty seven. So it it does represent a significant a significant ramping up of housing delivery. But if you consider that back in two thousand and six we were delivering over ninety thousand, you know, but but still, given where we're coming from, it is quite an ask. And I guess one of the main challenges here will be, is there capacity within the housing system, within construction to deliver this? Uh, That's going to be a challenge. I I suppose the other thing, I mean, I look at the housing plan and typically the reaction to it has broken down on ideological, political grounds. You know, Sinn Féin, the left, uh, they think it's a dreadful plan. Others on the other side, the political spectrum, think it's a sensible plan and only time will answer this question. However, I think it's difficult to argue with the aspirations contained in the plan. But the thing that really worries me is that, and I think I've said this to you in private many times over the last couple of years, on budget night, after a day of number crunching and mind-numbing stuff, I typically go out for a walk late at night and and what I've been, my thought process in the last couple of years has been, where is Irish housing policy at the moment? I haven't a goddamn clue because it seems to change from day to day. It has been terribly reactive. We have got all of these various housing plans um, of different types launched over recent years. And now we have another plan. I wish to God they would just put a, pa- a plan in place and stick to it, take a long term strategic perspective on it Um, and and the fear would be that based on the latest tweet from somebody that government housing policy will change again in the budget and the budget after that it's too reactive you've got to create a plan and a strategy and stick to it and obviously as circumstances change you can tweak it you have to tweak it but let's let's go with this now well jim is this a plan worth sticking to having looked at it now is this the plan that you would have hoped for? Does it make sense? Does it add up? Is it coherent? And will it deliver on its promises? And will it deliver the solution to Ireland's housing crisis? Well, I, I think if we stick with it, you know, if we do deliver 300,000 houses by the end of the decade, that, that will be a decent delivery of housing supply. OK, 33,000 per annum, probably a little bit on the light side. Uh, but Okay, it's it's good to see official forecasts or projections on the light side rather than on the heavy side, as is normally the case. Chris, if by 2030 this housing plan were to be delivered in full, I think it would go some way towards solving the housing crisis. Uh, some of the reactions I've seen, of course, is that it is not going to solve the here and now. That was never possible. That the solution to our housing problem is a long term project there's no doubt about that Um, and it's also a project 
that cannot be solved by any one solution, as we discussed in our latest podcast. The housing thing is incredibly complex. There's the supply side, there's the demand side. Um, I think it is necessary to focus on both of those. Um, I guess what we saw yesterday is very much a focus on the supply side. We need to think about the demand side as well. And a really important thing here is to bring house prices back down to make housing affordable again. Uh, that is absolutely crucial in my regard, in, in my view. So, Chris, I hope it's delivered. Um, I think it will be challenging. The thing that will make it particularly challenging is the political landscape. You know, the danger is that in two or three years' time, we get a change of government with a different political complexion, and suddenly we're, we're, we're presented with a new housing strategy again. That'll just serve to confuse things even more. Um, and the other thing that is really crucial here is, is the planning process. And um, Michal Martin, the Taoiseach, has spoken about NIMBYism um, in the last 24 hours. Uh, and there is no doubt about it. The objections to housing developments that happen here, absolutely extraordinary. If the planning system is not addressed, this plan will not be delivered. I think there's no doubt about that. And I would recommend to anybody, perhaps because it, it appeals to my view of the world, but Mark Paul has a superb piece in the Irish Times this morning that addresses some of these issues um, I would recommend anybody read it. He writes good stuff generally, uh, in my view. Okay, not not everybody agrees, obviously, but but that's it, Chris. Um, that there is no certainty here. Um, to deliver this will require the planning system to become much more proactive and and reactive, and it will also require um, the providers of public services such as Irish Water to make sure they deliver the public service that are required to get housing on stream as quickly as possible. We've got to go with it. You mentioned Mark Paul. Another journalist that I know we both like is a guy called Tim Harford, who writes for the Financial Times. He's actually an eminent economist in his own right. He's a very smart bloke and writes in a way that I can only envy. And he, he didn't quite mean it in the context that I'm about to put it, but there's a lovely phrase in an article that he's written this week, and I quote, it is hard for a well-informed person to appreciate the depth of someone else's ignorance. <laughs> and I think in the context of many things, Jim, many things that we talk about here, we're, we're trying to correct that, that gap or fill that gap. But in the context of housing policy, when you do know something about house prices and housing demand and housing supply, even if you're not the world's leading expert, I think you're reminded on a daily basis about the depth of other people's ignorance, particularly some political parties. Um, you mentioned planning. I, I too have been a writer, as, as some of you will know, and I wrote for many years for the Irish Times. And one of the most controversial articles that I wrote several years ago was about this very issue, planning. And I suggested that the, 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 one of the um, things that could very quickly cure the, the, the housing crisis, which was existing back then in, in a slightly different form to the one we have today. And I suggested that we just suspend the planning system for two years, just have a free-for-all. And the well. <laughs> stuff that came in, you wouldn't believe. But anyway, we'll leave that. Um, uh, one of the ways in which you and I differ, Jim, is that um, I suspect that if these 300,000 or however many houses is, it is are built by the end of the decade, there there is a presumption, I think, that house prices will be lower, or at least lower than they otherwise would be, and that that aspect of the housing crisis, the, the house price thing, 
will be alleviated, if only a little bit. And I keep banging on about the way in which there is lots of evidence, particularly here in the UK, actually, that the driver of high house prices, because they're just as high here in many cases, is interest rates. And unless you get interest rates up, you can do whatever you like to housing supply and demand. You won't uh, not affect house prices, but you might be surprised by how little the effect actually is. And that if the main driver is low interest rates, presumably it would help if interest rates went up. We've just had the annual general meeting, if you like, or the um, away day, to put it in more popular terms, of the world's central bankers who set interest rates, who ultimately are responsible for these low interest rates that I think are the source of the problem. And their annual general meeting, their away weekend, is in a place called Jackson Hole. And it's in Wyoming, lovely place, in the Teton Mountains. I wish they'd do it during ski season and I might actually go and and pretend to be an observer. But there were all sorts of interesting things discussed at this central bank symposium. We talked about Jerome Powell, the governor of the Federal Reserve, the United States Central Bank last time, and the important speech that he made at this meeting. But there were lots of papers discussed, as they always are at these sorts of get-togethers, And one of them has really caught my eye because it speaks to that point in a different way about interest rates. Now, interest rates have been so low for so long that we've gotten used to it. And and the idea that I I can remember paying a mortgage rate in Ireland of 17% not that long ago, maybe a good few years ago. And I'm sure you remember those those days as well. There are an awful lot of people now who, who have no memory of high interest rates and where interest rates being near zero in many cases, particularly if you are a government borrowing, it seems normal. It's not. And and they're really not. They cause all sorts of problems and they reflect all sorts of problems that cause low interest rates. And there's a new one out, according to some very eminent economists, and it links the interest rate problem to inequality. Interest rates are low for lots of reasons, most of which we don't fully understand, an awful lot of which are controversial. People have been debating what has caused low interest rates. Japan has had them now for at least two decades. We've had them for for about 10 years now, and it looks like they're going to stay around for as long as Japan has had them. But nobody has done this, posited this link between inequality and low interest rates. And it's a simple point that anybody that remembers first year economics from either their leaving cert, their A-levels, or maybe their first year at university, if ever they did economics there, And it's the point that Keynes made about the difference between rich people and poor people. Rich people don't spend any extra money in the way that poor people do. When you give extra money to rich people, they save it. They don't spend it, typically. Not always, but that on average is what they do. The rich getting richer has been, according to this research, driving interest rates ever lower. And that's because what happens is, is that they save the money. and, And one of the things that they buy when they save the money are bonds, which drives the bond price up, which is the same thing as driving interest rates down. And they buy equities and they drive equity prices up. The rich getting richer and saving more as they get richer has driven interest rates down, has driven equity markets up. So it's part of this financialization of the economy. I think that you could extend this argument to saying, well, if all they're buying are financial assets rather than real assets, if they're buying shares in Apple rather than a packet of biscuits, um, economic growth is suffering. So I think that inequality is now being fingered for um, stock prices being higher than they otherwise would be. That's equity markets. Bond yields, interest rates, our mortgage rates, our credit card rates, 
Our overdraft rates are all lower than they would otherwise be because of inequality. And a whole host of other societal ills, of course, are caused by inequality. So it strikes me that each time we look at this issue of inequality, um, its consequences just get worse and worse. I think this research is really interesting. I find it quite plausible. And I think that your housing problem isn't going to be sorted until the interest rate problem is sorted, which means sorting the inequality problem out. And we've talked a lot about that and the way in which, you know, it might actually be happening with the wages in these low paid sectors starting finally to go up. And we hope that 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 continues. But um, I thought that was um, spectacularly interesting, actually. And it says that until you cure inequality, this interest rate issue is not going to go away. So we can look forward to low interest rates for a long period of time where inequality persists. It's fascinating, Chris, um, in terms of the impact of interest rates on the housing market. I mean, I, I take that. I think it's it's a very important factor. It's not the only factor. The, the, the whole broader debate about inequality, um, I think, has been really highlighted over the last 18 months. And I think most policymakers now and most commentators, regardless of their ideological hue, really believe at this stage in the importance of addressing inequality. It, it obviously remains to be seen, you know, how inequality impacts interest rates and interest rates impact inequality in turn over the next couple of years. From, from an, the Irish government's housing policy perspective, I've, I've no idea what sort of assumptions they have built into their projections on interest rates because uh, th- that will hit in two ways. One is it obviously determines the demand for housing and the mortgage market and prices as a consequence, but also access to and the cost of finance for the developers who are going to be delivering these 300,000 houses. So there's, there's, there's lots of issues there. Uh, but I, I think this is an incredibly interesting contribution to the whole debate about the relationship between interest rates and inequality. And I guess the other thing that comes out of this is for years now, the primacy of monetary policy has been very, very strong. So in other words, in response to the great financial crash, the response was on the monetary policy side. We saw interest rates being slashed. We saw quantitative easing, bond buying, pushing bond yields down. So the primacy of monetary policy. But I get the sense over the last 18 months that the balance has shifted back towards fiscal policy, that there is now an explicit recognition of the role that fiscal policy will have to play in addressing the global problems um, into the future. And that we're probably in an environment now for the first time, I think in a long, long time, that fiscal and monetary policy probably have at least equal significance in the policy agenda. Yeah, at least equal. I I think that's absolutely right, Jim. Um, We've had monetary dominance, I would call it, for years now, where the management of the business cycle, the management of the economy is really being conducted by central bankers via the interest rate channel and the quantitative easing channel. And fiscal policy, at best, has been a residual. It gets a lot of attention around budget time, but that's about it, really. The other context in which fiscal policy has been important has really been the austerity agenda, which, as you say, is over. Times have changed. And so I think that you said 50-50. I would say we're going into, we're in the middle of an era of fiscal dominance, actually, where monetary policy is, as you say, 50-50. I'd say it's playing second fiddle to fiscal policy. But the point being, of course, 
is that these two things are now acting together and one is not the residual of the other. And th there was a paper at the Jackson Hole Symposium, actually, that, that made these points in a slightly more technical way, which says that basically monetary policy and fiscal policy certainly have to be much better coordinated, much better analysed, taken together. A simple example of what that might mean, for example, is that the Irish government could continue borrowing huge amounts of money over the next few years if it wants to. But in a sense, um, that would be just a bailing of the uh, largesse of the European Central Bank in, in buying the bonds that it's issuing. And there's an argument about whether or not the, the private sector would be willing to do that. But fiscal, poli being, fiscal policy and monetary policy work together. They don't work in isolation. That's the important point. And how they work together in the future is going to be very, very important. So I think we've, we're out of time, Jim, as always. Um, a long list of things on our agenda that we didn't talk about, but that as always, leaves it uh, for next time. So have a great weekend. Yeah, you have a soon. good one. You have a good one too, Chris. I'm bringing a group of Dublin hill walkers down to Dungarvan for the weekend to walk in the Cumbras. So look, looking forward to that, God's country and all that. Enjoy. See you, mate. Bye. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com. You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify and other good podcast platforms.